Let's turn to that word now. If you've got your Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16. We'll have these words up on the screen behind me as well. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks as we've been studying in this book of Genesis, it's been, been a good few weeks for Abraham, hasn't it? Chapter 14, he goes out to fight the uh, four kings from the east and the Lord delivers him, delivers his nephew. Last week, chapter 15, God made a covenant with Abraham as, faith, as his faith continued to grow and it was counted to him as righteousness. And God says that he will guarantee that he will fulfill the promises that he made to Abram, the promises of land, seed, and blessings. So things have been looking up and up over the last couple of weeks and now we come to chapter 16. And as we have already seen in the story of faith, that is Abram's story, there's some ups and there are some downs, aren't there? And faith is not always just a, an upward trend of things getting better and better, but as we said last week, it's a roller coaster. And the most important thing is that we stay strapped in. We don't measure our discipleship in terms of days and weeks or even in months, but in years and in a lifetime. And what matters is that the faith is there and that it's growing despite all of our ups and downs. So this certainly is a down in the story of Abram or Abraham. He's gonna, his name's going to change next week, don't worry, and we can stop doing this. Right now he's still Abram. This is another low point in the story of Abram, but as we'll see, God is even going to use this. This one more instance of weak and wavering faith to strengthen his faith and to strengthen our faith. So let's look at this now. This is Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. 
And therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, usually when we study a passage, we try to work through it verse by verse, line by line. We even try to use the structure of the text to be our preaching outline for that morning. But this morning, we're going to change things up a little bit. We're going to do it a little differently. So instead of working through this story line by line, I actually want us to consider all of the characters in this story one after another. So we're going to kind of pass through this story multiple times from the perspective of these different characters. And as the sermon is titled, we're going to see three sinners and one Savior. So first we're going to start with Sarai. So this is your first point, Sarai. In verse 1 it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So this family is going through the very common, very difficult struggle of infertility. And this isn't a, structure, a struggle that the Bible turns a blind eye to, that has nothing to speak to. In fact, barrenness, as the Bible calls it, or infertility is a, a motif that recurs again and again, especially in the book of Genesis, but throughout the whole Bible. As we'll see in Genesis, every woman in the line of promise, every woman in the line of this seed of the woman, the text explicitly says is barren. Okay, so we start here with Sarah, and then we have Rachel, or Rebecca, and then we have Rachel, okay, that they all are in fertile until God opens up their wombs. And it's not just in Genesis. As I said, you read in 1 Samuel, you have the story of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. She couldn't have children. Or in the Gospel according to Luke, we have Elizabeth, who cannot have children until her old age. So many women, many families have struggled this, with this struggle of infertility. And the idea that, that emerges as you look at all of these families together in the Bible is that it is ultimately God who is sovereign over all of the affairs of life, but especially over who can and who cannot have children. In the book of Genesis, the main idea with these women that all in the same line struggle with infertility, the main idea is that this promised line, this line in the seed of the woman, is going to come about miraculously. In terms of all human probability, this cannot happen. It's impossible. And so what emerges in the book of Genesis is this this idea that with God, all things are possible. And the blessing that God is going to pour out through the line of Abraham, it's only going to come through God's miraculous intervention. And that theme is the one that goes through the whole Bible that climaxes with the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary. If there was anyone in the whole Bible who was unable to have children, it would be a woman who had never been with a man. And yet it was from her womb that the Lord brought forth the true offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So the idea is that it is God who is in control over who can and who cannot have women. And with God, things that seem impossible to us are possible. God can do impossible things. But he doesn't always. And not always in our timing. And that's really the big issue in our text this morning. So we see again in verse 1, Sarai has had no children. She has been barren for 76 years. 
But then about 10 years before this event in Genesis chapter 16 has happened, God came to Abram and he promised Abram that he would have children. So this is an important difference between any of us that might be struggling with infertility in Abram and Sarai. For us, we have to remember this truth as hard as it is that children are a gift, but not a guarantee. Children are a gift. I was telling myself this this morning when my son had a blowout diaper. (laughs) Children are a gift, and they're not guaranteed. And for some of you, you just need to hear that. Children are not a guarantee. They are not your right. You are not entitled to that, but they are a gift that we ask God for. Their gift, not a guarantee, except for Abram and Sarah, they were a guarantee. God had guaranteed children to Abram and Sarai. And so this makes Sarai's waiting even more difficult. God had promised them offspring. Or at least God had promised Abram offspring. If you've still got your Bible open, look back up at chapter 15, verse 4. This is when Abram is complaining to God that he has no son to be his heir and that his most trusted servant, Eliezer of Damascus, was going to be his heir. And God replies in Genesis 15, 4, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. You remember I said last week that in Hebrew that literally says one from your own body will be your heir. Well, that doesn't say anything about Sarai's body, does it? There's a little ambiguity there in the text. In verse three of our text, in chapter 16, it says that Abram and Sarai have been living in Canaan for 10 years. So by this point, Sarai has been waiting for 10 long years, that old familiar cycle that she thought she was done with, eagerness, expectation, and then disappointment, month after month for 10 long years as she is waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And as she is waiting, that little window of ambiguity in God's word starts to open up, get wider and wider, and she starts thinking. She starts scheming. Wait a minute. God didn't say anything about my body. She just said, Abram's body. So we see at the end of verse one, Sarai had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now notice the text is going to repeatedly stress that she's Egyptian. She was probably acquired, this servant, this slave, she was probably acquired back in chapter 12 when there was that other journey of fear, when Abram flees down into Egypt because of the famine. It says he comes out having acquired servants down in the land of Egypt. So, so that low point in Abram's story comes back into this low point in Abram's story. But Sarai has a female Egyptian named Hagar. In verse two, Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. There's an author named L.P. Hartley, and he famously wrote, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. So much of what Sarai is suggesting that she and Abram do here, this strikes us as absurd, if not reprehensible. But what is very important for us to understand as we come to this passage is that what she is suggesting was actually very, very common at this place and this time. 
this kind of surrogacy that they're practicing. We have many examples of it both in the Bible and outside of the Bible. They would write whole laws about how this certain arrangement was to be set up. There would be marriage contracts with a clause written in them about what to do if someone was infertile if the wife was infertile. And this is how it would work, that the infertile couple would, would, would use a slave or a concubine, concubine as, a, as a surrogate womb. And then if she conceived, that child would be the children, would become the child of this infertile couple. This was a very widespread practice. And as I said, we're gonna see it come up again. So what we need to hear when Sarai suggests this to Abram in verse two is not that she has come up with some crazy idea by herself. What we need to hear is that she is being conformed to the pattern of the world. She has uncritically adopted the world's view on marriage and on sexuality and on children and how you have children. And so this is an important lesson for us that just because everyone else says that something is okay, even legal, pertaining to marriage, pertaining to sexuality, pertaining to children, just because everybody out there says it's okay, that doesn't mean that it's right that we need to listen to God's voice to conform our minds to God's word, be transformed by God's word. But, but Sarah is not listening to God. She is not consulting God on this. It, it struck me as I was studying this, Sarah actually mentions the Lord's name twice in this passage. She's the kind of person that talks a lot about God, but never talks to God, and is never trying to hear from God. But instead what she's doing is she's taking matters into her own hands. She isn't trusting God. She isn't trusting that God can fulfill his promises. That is the big problem in this passage. That is the sin that Sarai struggles with. Look again at verse two. It says, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from having children. In one sense, Sarai is right. That's good theology who does and does not have children, and that is ultimately up to the Lord. But, but doesn't this sound more like an accusation? She's blaming God. This is God's fault. Either God is unable or he is unwilling to give me children. Either God can't fulfill his covenant or he won't. And if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. It's important to see that this sin is not dissimilar from Eve's sin in the garden, her temptation in the garden. And again, this is a theme that's gonna come up again and again. Sarai is being tempted to doubt God's promises, to doubt God's goodness and his ability to come through on his blessing. She doubts that God can do what he said, and so she reaches out and she takes. She takes matters into her own hands. She oversteps her bounds, and it's sin. And all sin is like this. All of our sin is just like this, that we doubt God's promises, we doubt God's goodness, and in sinning, we just are reaching out and trying to take through our own human means what is only God's blessing to give. Every sin has this at its root, that you are trying to take for yourself what is only God's to give you. And it never goes well. Look at verse four. Abram went into Hagar, and she conceived And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. I think sometimes the harshest, strictest discipline that God can give to us is to let our plans succeed. This goes exactly according to plan. 
Hagar gets pregnant. The text makes it sound like it only took one try. And that must have stung Sarai so bad. And then when they realize that Hagar is pregnant, then suddenly there's all of this relational strife because of course there is. Don't know what they thought was going to happen. And that's the thing about sin, isn't it, right? You never think about the consequences. You never think about how it's going to mess everything up. You just think about what you might get right then in that moment. And we're going to talk about what Hagar does here in a moment, but we can see from Sarai's perspective what's at root for her is that after all of this has happened, she just feels disrespected. She feels somehow inferior because this other woman was able to conceive when she has never been able to. So she's taken matters into her own hands and then everything goes pear-shaped and now she's just insecure and jealous and frustrated. And all of it comes out in anger. Anger is, in many ways, just the response that we have when we find out that we're not very good gods. Verse five, she gets angry at her husband. She lashes out at Abram. May the wrong done to me be on you. Earlier she was blaming God. Now she's blaming Abram. This is all your fault. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And then in verse six, when Abram basically just punts on the whole arrangement, says, Sarah, you do whatever you want with Hagar. Well, what does Sarah do? She deals harshly with her so that Hagar fled from her. Because it doesn't give us more details about what's going on here, although the word to deal harshly with is actually the same word for afflicted in chapter 15. So when God says that Israel will be afflicted in Egypt, this is the same word. And so isn't that crazy, this crazy role reversal that's happening right there? The Hebrews will be afflicted by the Egyptians until they flee Egypt and come into the promised land. And now we have an Egyptian being afflicted by a Hebrew such that she flees the promised land and goes to Egypt. It's a backwards exodus. And Sarai's the bad guy. Sarai's in the place of Pharaoh in this story because she has doubted God's promises. She has reached out, overstepped, taken matters into her own hands, and she has sinned. She has sinned against Abram, and she has sinned against Hagar but she's not the only sinner in this story. So let's consider this next character, Abram. This is our second point. So go back up to verse two. Sarai comes to Abram with the suggestion, go into my servants. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And now if I can just hit some really low-hanging fruit application here. Men, if your wife ever comes to you and suggests that you take another wife, just say no. It never goes well. God never condones polygamy, and anytime anybody tries it in the Bible, it does not go well. But Abram doesn't say no, does he? No, what does he do? Verse 2 at the end, it says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. It's the same word, he heard the voice of Sarai. That's using this word in the sense of following or even obeying. In Genesis chapter three, God curses the ground because Adam listened to the voice of his wife. It's the same word, it's the same construction. So what the text here is saying is that Abram here is acting just like Adam did then. So think back to the garden. 
Adam's role was to guard and to keep the garden according to God's word. God had given Adam a very clear command. Do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when Adam's wife, tempted by Satan, comes to Adam and suggests that they take some of that fruit that God had forbidden, Adam's only job was supposed to be to lead her away from temptation, to lead her away from sin, and to walk in faith and obedience. That was God's, or that was Adam's job. And he failed. Instead of leading his wife, he listened to the voice of his wife. He did not guard her. He followed her suggestion. He was passive. And it led to their own deaths and the death of every person who came after them. Abram's sinning the same way. Sarai has come to him with a very bad suggestion, a suggestion that is proving that she's doubting God's promises, that she's conforming to the pattern of the world. And Abram's job was supposed to be to guard her and to keep her from sin. And instead, he's being passive. Sarai is reaching out and taking matters into her own hands, and Abram is taking a hands-off approach to his wife. And just like Adam's sin had devastating worldwide consequences that are still being felt today. So Abramson has devastating worldwide consequences that we are still feeling. What do I mean by that? Well, today, Jews and Christians trace their ethnic and religious lineage to Isaac, to the son of Sarah. And Muslims, especially Arab Muslims, trace their lineage through Ishmael. And so think of all of the tension that exists today between these two groups in our world. It all comes back to this point right here in the strife between these two wives. Abram could have stopped all of it. Abram could have brought peace to the Middle East in Genesis 16 if he had just been a good husband. But he wasn't. He wasn't a good husband to Sarai, and he wasn't a good husband to Hagar. Because Hagar becomes his wife. But when Sarai comes to him and she's all upset about Hagar, well, then he misses another opportunity to lead. What does he do? He just says whatever he needs to say to get Sarai off his back. Look, she's your servant, not my wife. I'm not taking any responsibility there. She's your servant. Do whatever you want. Just leave me out of it. Husbands, from one husband to another, Abram is a negative example to us in this story. What I mean by that is, don't be like Abram here. Don't be like Adam. Guard your wife. Keep the garden of your home according to God's word. Be the leader. And this doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen to our wives. That would be to horribly misread what this passage is saying. When it uses the word listen, like I said, it means it in the sense of obeying. But we should certainly listen to our wives in the sense of valuing their voice, of seeking their input. My, my wife is way godlier than I am. Much more discerning. Did you amen that? I hope you're talking about your wife. But she is. God has given me a wife who I would be a fool to not listen to. 
because she is so wise and so godly and so discerning. I should listen to my wife in the sense that I value her input. But when everything is said and done, I'm the leader. I'm the leader in my home, and the only voice I should listen to in the sense of obeying is the Lord's voice. Notice, man, I didn't say your voice. You're not listening to your own voice. You're listening to the Lord's voice. You're listening to the Lord's voice, which means you have to be hearing God's word. You have to be committed to listening to God's voice, not just for your own sake. Men, if you are not committed to your own discipleship, if you are not committed to studying God's word and learning what it means to live in godly obedience to what he has written down for us, if you're not committed to studying that, then you're not only sinning against God, you're sinning against your wives. And you're sinning against your children. If God has given you children, he has entrusted them to you for you to guard them and keep them according to his word, to listen to his voice. Abram didn't listen to God's voice. He listened to the voice of his wife when she was trying to lead their family away from God's word, away from God's will. He sinned, just like Adam. So Sarah sinned, Abram sinned, and we have one more sinner in this story. And that's Hagar. Now somebody says, hold on just a minute. Hagar has been sinned against. You leave Hagar alone. And she has been. She has been sinned against grievously. And I don't want to do anything to downplay that. As I was studying this text and I was just kind of trying to enter into this narrative, into this story, I just kept on thinking how horribly Hagar has been treated in all of this. She's been treated like property. Notice the verbs that are used about her. She's taken. She's given. She's never talked to. She's never consulted. In fact, Abram and Sarai never even use her name when they're talking about her. She's just the servant. So she's been treated like property. She's been dealt with harshly. She's been afflicted. She's been taken advantage of, treated very unjustly by people with authority over her. And I I don't know that culturally it would be quite right to equate this with sexual abuse, but there's certainly a sexual aspect to the hurt that she's feeling as everything has played out in this story. And then after all of that, she's rejected. Abram completely forsakes her. So is it any wonder in verse six that she flees? And then in verse seven, it says that she is on her way to sure which if you looked at a map would mean that she was probably on her way to Egypt from where they were in the promised land. So to add all her misery, everything that she has already been through, now she is wandering through the desert alone and pregnant. Poor girl. I know there's some of you that really identify with Hagar in this story. And so you say, how dare you accuse her of sin? How can you call her a sinner, after everything that she's been through. And without a doubt, as you read this story, most of the blame falls on Abram and Sarah, I would say, especially Abram. But Hagar's not blameless, because no one is blameless. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not all in the same way, 
but we will all stand before the judge of all the earth, and he doesn't grade us on a curve based on how bad everybody else was. You're gonna give an account for your own sin, no matter what it is and no matter what circumstances drew it out of you. And we see that Hagar has sin here. Look again at verse four. When Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now what exactly that means, it's hard to determine. It's interesting, the word contempt in verse four, it's the same word for dishonors in chapter 12, when God tells Abram, whoever dishonors you, I will curse. It's the same word, and it has a wide range, and so it can mean to literally curse someone, or to revile someone, or to despise someone, but it can also mean to treat someone lightly, to not give them the respect or the honor that they deserve. And so we're not sure where on the spectrum this is, but we do know that Sarai picked up on something, didn't she? Something about that fact that Hagar conceived when Sarai couldn't, that made Hagar feel or act proud or act dishonorably towards Sarai, who was in authority over her. Again, the text doesn't give us any details, but, but I, I wonder... This poor girl who's been dispossessed, who's been powerless her entire life, suddenly finds herself in a situation where she has some leverage. Is she using it? Is she using what little power she has to try and hurt the ones who have been hurting her? Even if it's just a sarcastic comment, or a disrespectful glance, or the silent treatment, that's still sinful. That still comes out of a sinful heart. Her heart was not for Sarai. It was against her. And then we think of Jesus' weighty words that we are to love our enemies. Hagar has not loved Sarai as herself. She sinned. And this takes so much wisdom there's so much more I wish that I could say here, but you know I've only got 45 minutes. And The big lesson that we can learn from this text is that someone else's sin, no matter how bad it is, it's not an excuse or a justification for you to sin. Someone else's sin is not an excuse for you to sin. Their sin is sin whether it's an individual, whether it's a group, whether it's an institution, their sin is a sin and it will be, they will be held accountable for it. You can trust God for that. And their sin has consequences. And please don't hear me saying by any means that you should be intentionally putting yourself in harm's way when there's a way out, okay? This takes wisdom and, and we wanna help you if you feel like you're in a situation where a relationship is harmful for you. Please come talk to your pastors who wanna help you here, okay? But someone else's sin against you does not mean that your sin against them is warranted or forgivable. God is going to hold you accountable for your sin just as much as he's gonna hold them accountable and you can't say before the throne of God, they started it. So for all the ways that Hagar has been sinned against, and she has, we know that she is not without sin here. She needs help too. 
She's not the only one that needs help. Everyone in this story needs a savior. That's the point, just like we all do. And so this is where we get to our last character, the angel of the Lord. And so we have to start by asking, who is this guy? Who's this angel of the Lord guy that just shows up? This is the first mention of him in the whole Bible, but he's going to come up again and again throughout the Old Testament in a number of different contexts. He is some kind of supernatural being that appears to people, usually in a a visual form that looks like a human, is what it seems like. He's taken on kind of a human appearance. He appears to God's people to accomplish divine purposes. So we ask, well, who is this angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh? And there's really two options for how you can understand this guy, this angel, when he shows up in the Bible. One is that it is an angel from the Lord. The word angel in Hebrew means messenger. And so some people read the angel of the Lord as a messenger come from heaven speaking as God's representative, announcing God's will to people. Okay, so that's one interpretation But what's weird is whenever the angel of the Lord shows up, many times in the Old Testament, that role of him coming and speaking as a representative gets kind of blurry with him being God himself. So we see this even in our text here. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord speaks of Yahweh in the third person. He says, Yahweh has listened to your affliction. But then in verse 13, Hagar calls the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. So who has spoken to her? Who is she seeing? Well, she says it's the Lord. So again, it gets gets blurry. And this isn't the only place or even the clearest place in the Old Testament where that happens. And so you could think of this angel of the Lord as being an angel or the other perspective. And this is the perspective that I take is that this is actually Yahweh himself. This is a visible manifestation of Yahweh God to people. And not, not all of Yahweh God. Not God in his unfiltered glory. Okay, Because John says no one has ever seen God. And, and he tells Moses, if you actually saw me, you'd die. But this is some manifestation of Yahweh to people in a way where they can see him in a physical, visible form. It's making himself visible some way that he might reveal himself and his will to his people. And now I think on this perspective, some people go a little too far, and they say that must then always be the second person of the Trinity appearing in this form as the angel of Yahweh. They say that this is a Christophany, which would mean God the Son coming before he has taken on flesh, taking a human appearance. Okay, could be but I don't think the text ever makes that very clear. I think that might be reading some of our New Testament Trinitarian theology into the Old Testament. But here's what I think. At the end of the day, this is what is happening with the angel of the Lord. That we are getting a theological foundation for this idea of someone that is both with God and God who reveals himself to God's people to accomplish God's will and to save them from their sins. And that's what's happening here. Remember I said this is the first appearing of the angel of the Lord in the whole Bible, this really important manifestation of God. And just look who he's revealing himself to. He's not revealing himself to Abraham. He's not revealing himself to Sarah. He came to a poor slave girl who has been harshly treated, who's all alone, who's been sinned against, 
and who is sinful. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Think about how beautiful this is. In this whole passage, Abram and Sarai have never used Hagar's name. And here comes the angel of the Lord, Hagar. He knows her. He knows her. And he's come in this special manifestation just for her. And then he asks her questions. What dignity to ask someone a question? How much can you show that you value them as a person? To ask them a question. God asks her a question and it's very, very similar to when God came to Adam and Eve in the garden. After they had sinned, what does he do? He asks them questions. Where are you? What have you done? He comes to Hagar, asks her some questions, and then really even like Adam and Eve, it seems like she's blame shifting a little bit. Verse eight, she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. You remember Sarai, the one who's been afflicting me, the one who's treated me like property, the one who has made my life miserable. I'm fleeing from her. Never mind the fact that I haven't loved her the way that she deserves either, that I haven't made her life enjoyable myself. But I'm running away from Hagar. And then look at, look at what happens in verse nine. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Does that sound familiar? This is, this is tying in to what God had said to Abram. This is Genesis 12. This is Genesis 15. He's saying, Hagar, go to the land that I show you. Go to Canaan. Go to the promised land where you're running away from. Go back there. And I'm gonna give you offspring. And I'm gonna make you into a multitude so big that it cannot be numbered. That's exactly what God said to Abram. And then he gets even more specific in verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And verse 12 seems to be referring to the fact that the Ishmaelites in Moses' time were Bedouins. They wandered around. They didn't have any land. They, they, they were nomadic, just like wild donkeys at that time. They didn't live with other people, and they didn't want to live with other people. They didn't really seem to get along with anybody else. That was how it was at the time of Moses. But they were still numerous. They were still wealthy. They were blessed. Next week when we see chapter 17, God is going to say of Ishmael, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. So more parallels to Abram here, right? 12 princes, just like Israel is gonna have 12 tribes. And there's even a parallel to Adam. There's an Edenic blessing that God gives to Ishmael. I'm gonna make him fruitful and multiply him. I'm going to bless Ishmael. Why? Because he's Abram's son. That's what he's saying to Hagar. Hagar, I'm going to bless you because you're Abram's wife. No matter how Abram's treated you, no matter how Sarah's treated you, I'm going to bless you 
because you are Abram's wife. I'm gonna bless your son because he is Abram's son. It has everything to do with Abraham and God's promises to Abraham. And so the Lord has come to Hagar and he's asking her to respond in faith to his ability to bless Abram. God is coming to Hagar and he says, return to your mistress and submit to her. Don't dishonor her. Don't hold her in contempt because she's Abram's wife and whoever dishonors Abram, I will curse. He's holding out the promises that he made to Abram, but then he says, whoever blesses Abram, I will bless. And then look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. And therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi, and it lies between Kadesh and Bered. It's all about the names here. Names are very important in the book of Genesis. God comes to Hagar and he says, you will name your son Ishmael, which means God hears. It's from the same root, Shama, for listen. Like when Abram listens to the voice of his wife and it says, God has listened to your affliction here, he says, your son will be called Ishmael. God hears. But not only does God name Hagar's son, but Hagar actually gives a name to God. And she is the only person in the whole Bible who gets to give a name to God. This is the only time that this happens. And what does she name him? El Roi. God sees. See, she takes it up a level. Not only has God heard, but God has seen. He's the God of seeing. And then she connects that name to this well, the well of the living one who sees. And this is the whole idea of this whole passage. This is the the point that this has been driving to. God hears and God sees. Who? Sinners. God sees sinners. God saw Hagar when she thought that she was all alone and no one cared about her. He heard of her affliction. He saw her rejection. He knows her name and he came to her. He came to her and he promised that he was going to look after her and that he was going to bless her beyond her wildest dreams despite all of her sin. And he gently leads her in repentance. Turn around. Go back. This isn't the way that you want to go. You are going away from blessing. Turn around. Go back. He's inviting Hagar on her own journey of faith. And she trusted him. She says, you see me. You hear me. And she obeys. She obeys. She goes back. The text doesn't give us the details of her trip back, but we know that she went back. And not only that she went back, but that she told Abram everything that happened. How do we know that? Look at verse 15. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So we had three sinners and one savior. Now we have three sinners, one savior, and a baby. And Abram names him Ishmael. How does Abram know what to name him? Hagar told him. So just think about this. 
Think about this story. Enter into this narrative, okay? Abram and Sarai make a horrible mistake. They doubt. They don't trust God. It goes very badly. And Hagar flees. Do you think they're ever going to see Hagar again? They know what they did. They know why this happened. Of course they think Hagar is never going to come back. And then one day she shows up. Still pregnant. And not only is she back, but she's got a different attitude. She's ready to submit to Sarai. She's not dishonoring her anymore. And Abram has to ask, Hagar, what happened? And she says, God heard me. God saw me. God made me some promises. And so I'm back. And I'm staying. And no matter how bad this is, no matter how much affliction I have to suffer at your hands, no matter how long I have to wait, I know, I believe that God can do what he promised you and what he promised me. So I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait here, Abram, because I know that God is going to give me a son. We're going to call him Ishmael, and God's going to make him into a great nation, and I'm hoping in that promise. I'm not going to take matters into my own hand, Abram. I'm not going to run away. I'm going to try and love Sarai as best as I can. And I'm going to wait. And that's what Abram and Sarai should have been saying the whole time, isn't it? This is just a rebuke. God coming to Hagar was really his way of coming to Abram and Sarai. Sending her back to them with a message that they should have been preaching to themselves this whole time. This little Egyptian slave is a message to Abram and Sarai. And that message is Ishmael. God hears. Every day that that little kid was growing up in their house, they were just having a little sermon illustration preached to them. Every time they called him in to dinner, Ishmael, Ishmael, oh yeah, God hears. And we forgot that. We forgot that. And yet, God hears us too. Not only did God hear Hagar, not only did God see Hagar, but he hears Abram and Sarai. He hears Abram and Sarai. And no matter how much they sin, no matter how much they try to mess up God's promises by doing it themselves, God is faithful. He's faithful to fulfill what he said he was going to do. And God is faithful to you. Hagar's message to Abram and Sarai, it's, it's God's message to you. God hears you. God sees you. Even in your sin. This has been a hard passage. This has been a heavy passage because all three of these sinners, they kind of just hold up a mirror to us, don't they? They make you more aware of your own sin, of your own weakness, of your own shortcoming. And yet it preaches to us this good news that God will still bless. God can still forgive. So are you here and you're doubting? Are you here and you're being passive when you need to be a leader? Are you being proud? Are you dishonoring someone in authority over you? Are you wrestling with disappointment? Are you in a difficult marriage? Are you waiting? Are you waiting for God to do what he said he would do? Friend, church, God sees you. God hears you. 
in your waiting. And he wants to come near to you. In fact, he has come near to us. And his son, Jesus Christ, who was both with God and was God and took on flesh as the true offspring of Abraham to be a better and more faithful Adam and to lead his wayward bride, the church, and to love us, to love his enemies, and to suffer affliction on your behalf on the cross so that he could take all of that sin away. We don't walk away from this text feeling bad about ourselves. We walk away from this text and we say, thank you, Jesus. All of your sin he died for so that he could secure all of God's promises for you. So the cross of Christ is proof that God sees and God hears and that God will keep his word. So wait for him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. And God, we're sorry for the ways that we have forgotten your promises and wandered away and been tempted to sin. God, I pray that you would lead us in repentance, that we would not continue in doubt, but that we would know that you see us and that you hear us, and God, that we would, we would repent, we would go back, we would consider Jesus and the death that he died so that we could be forgiven, the life that he lived so that we could walk in newness of life. And God, I pray that you would help all of us to wait, to wait for you to fulfill your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.